Well, good morning to all of you, those of you there joining us online. Uh, I want to ask a question that's just going to reveal a little something to the, uh, about the people around you. So here's the question. Growing up as a kid, how many of you got to play dodgeball growing up? Okay, yeah, all right, most of you. Okay, so growing up, how many of you were either sometimes the captain in picking your team or you were generally one of the first kids to get picked? Raise your hand. Okay, we got a few of those. Okay, so how many of you were like me and got picked last? Okay, yeah, all right, yeah. Wasn't that awesome, okay, to be that last kid standing and the captain's like, oh, all right, we'll take, we'll take him or take her. Just one more thing we got to process with a therapist later in life. And for most of us from a young age, whether it's sports or academics, whether it's the arts, whatever it is, uh, there is just something where we daydream about being that person that is picked first. Well, you know, the person that shines, the person that's wanted, the, one, the person that is admired and having the crowd to like rise to their feet and applaud our success or our, and, and our, our, just our accomplishments. And it feels like from a very early age that people are just always sizing us up to determine our potential. And then we enter into adolescence and then into adulthood. And many of us can even be haunted by this sense of potential that never, we never quite seem to reach, whether it's physically, whether it's in relationships or financially or our abilities, our careers, our character. And then for many of us, the day comes that we have children of our own. And there's something about being a parent that like kicks in this natural instinct to where we want to do all that we can to help our children achieve all of the potential that is in them. And so today we're going to take a look at a very key biblical character who had incredible potential and yet he blew it. And it had ramifications for everyone that came after him. And we, we are paying the price. Not, now, just to give you context, last week, we started this exciting series to help you, to help us understand, to understand this sometimes seemingly confusing, sometimes seemingly contradictory gathering of documents that we refer to as the Bible. But this isn't a book. This is 66 books. This is 66 books written by over 40 different authors over a period of 2,000 years, three different continents, three different languages, and yet it is telling one singular story about God's pursuit of humankind. And we started this series to help us, to help you understand how it all pieces together, to see that there is this greater unfolding story and that you are a part of it. This is your story. So over these next eight weeks, we're breaking down the whole Bible to eight key people and eight key words. So, and for the sake of time, I'm not going to recap last week. So if you missed it, you really need to go back, on, go online and watch it or get on, listen to the podcast, because it gives you the context for everything that we're going to talk about. But I want to quickly revisit one important idea. And that is this, that some of you, some of you struggle when it comes to the historicity or the reliability or the goodness of what we refer to as the Bible. As we said, uh, said last week, you know, the odds are your resistance, if you have resistance, your resistance and your negative perceptions connect to one of two things. For some of you, you grew up in a, a family or a home where it was crammed down your throat. You have associated this book with a culture. You were raised in a culture where maybe the Bible was weaponized. And you associate the Bible with that culture and you don't want to have anything to do with it. Or the evangelical culture, especially in the past three to five years, has maybe put a bad taste in your mouth when it comes to the Bible, and I totally get that. 
Or maybe you began to ask questions, but the religious culture that you were raised in, you were told it's bad to ask questions. You just need to believe. You just need to believe, and you were given faith-based answers to your fact-based questions. So at some point, you just decided, because of the religious culture you were raised in, that the Bible is just irrelevant or unreliable. And then for others of you, it could be that the truth is that you've just never actually read it. You know bits and pieces or what other people have said or told you about it, but you've never actually read it for yourself. So last week we said, all I ask is that you would just put those bad experiences, the resistance aside, and all the things that other people have told you about what it says, or why it's unreliable, or even bad, and just for the next few weeks to just engage it with fresh eyes. And in a context where your your doubts and your skepticism isn't diminished, but respected, and that you either pick up a hard copy or you download the YouVersion Bible app, use the NIV as your translation, and over the next few weeks, just begin to read it as we look at these eight individuals and their stories. And today, we're starting at the beginning with Genesis, the first book in the Bible. And we're going to start with someone that for many, it just sounds so fairy tale, so once upon a time. But you need to understand that the point, the main point of the first part of Genesis isn't how God created. It's that God created. And that is about Genesis. That got created. And I know for some of you, it's like, Chad, do you, like, do you, Adam and Eve, seriously? You expect me to take them seriously? Well, there's so much that I can't explain. The reason I take Adam seriously is because Jesus took Adam seriously. And when there's overwhelming evidence that someone did, in fact, predict and pull off their own death and resurrection, I just naturally assume that we can trust what they say. And Jesus took the story of Adam seriously. But even if you still struggle, it's okay. It's not a deal breaker between you and God. And if you had gone to Peter, one of Jesus's closest friends and followers, and said, you know, Peter, okay, two naked people, a talking snake, like, I don't think I can get on with that. I think Peter would have said, you know, I I can't really explain all that either, but here's what I do know. I saw my Lord tortured executed and entombed. And then days later, I and others were having breakfast with him on the beach. But what I think we can all agree on, I think we can all agree is that at some, at some point, humanity began. And I think we can also agree that as far back as we can trace human history, there has always been, existed a huge gap between real and ideal. In other words, most of us can sense things are not as they should be. Which means that we recognize that there is a version of life that could, would, and should be, and it would be different, it would be better than our current reality. And we all long for that. And I am convinced that that is the echo of, the, of humanity's genesis and the thumbprint of God on our soul. And whether you accept Adam and Eve as two literal human beings or symbolic of the first of humanity, the punchline is the same, that in the beginning, God created. So for our purposes, whether you consider him literal or symbolic, let's just assume today that Adam was a literal man and that as the first man, he had unbelievable potential, not just for himself, but to set the course for everyone and everything that came after him. The author of Genesis was thousands of years ahead of his time. See, he tells us what it took thousands of years to be realized and accepted as scientific fact, that in the beginning there was nothing. 
then in a moment there was something. Time, space, and matter. And the author tells us that the uncaused, first cause, God, created the universe and the world and everything just the way he wanted. And in time that he placed his prized creation, humans, Adam and Eve, in what we refer to as the garden, the garden of Eden. And in that scenario that God had created, it was breathtaking. It was everything beautiful that we see in our world, but without the negative things, without the natural disasters and catastrophes and erosion and droughts. It was beauty and grandeur. And the author of Genesis, who is Moses, by the way, He says at that point there was no death, so there's no predator-prey relationships. Plants, fruits, and berries, and grass were provided as food for man and beast. So lions and tigers, sheep and goats, elephants and bears, exotic birds, eagles, dolphins, whales, cats, dogs, everything God had created lived in harmony without any fear between man and beast or between animal and animal, and all things that make your relational life miserable, hurt, jealousy, anger, insecurity, bitterness, getting cheated, getting cheated on, getting fired, having someone talk about you behind your back or stab you in the back, all non-existent. And there was no death. There was no disease, no sickness, no cellulite, no muffin top, no dad bod. It was you were just naked with no insecurities, no felt need to cover up or hide anything. None of the things that make our world miserable today were there when God started it. And when it came to God, there was no barrier to that relationship. There was this fearless intimacy in interaction And in this entire scenario, in the beginning, it was everything that our hearts long for and everything that hurts our our hearts was non-existent. Everything you could possibly want or need, it was yours. Just enjoy it. Just enjoy your perfect paradise with this one simple little rule. And that's the context as we arrive to Genesis chapter 3. So if you want to open your Bible or your Bible app to Genesis 3, we'll also have the words on the screen. But this story is absolutely crucial to understand the greater story of redemption. It all begins here. God creates humanity. He loves humanity. He's created paradise. He's put Adam and Eve in that setting. In Genesis 3 verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. Now again, was it a literal talking snake? I don't think it matters. The the point of the author isn't what form it took. The point is in existence is an entity, a thinking being, a thinking force that for whatever reason is at, at odds with God and his creation. And he was there in our beginning. And he says to the woman, did God really say, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. Though, when you go back to Genesis chapter 2, he never said anything about touching it. Now, something we need to understand is there's a difference between you and I and Adam. And see, you and I were born with what we 
could consider a natural sin nature, a natural propensity towards rebellion, of going our own way, getting our own way, towards glorifying ourselves and not God. This usually reveals itself around the age of two. And some of you have, or have had, or babysat a two-year-old. Tell them not to touch something. And they look you in the eye as they slowly reach out to touch the very thing you just told them not to touch. And, and there's something even in us as adults that if somebody says, hey, don't cross that line, don't look in there, what do we want to do? We want to cross that line. I want, what are they hiding? I want to go see it. But it wasn't this way with our first ancestors. They didn't have this sin nature. At that point, they were good and pure and true, and the very nature of humanity was good, which is what we all long for in our lives and in our world. It's like this primal longing for how things were once upon a time. And the deceiver replies, you'll not certainly die. The serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and then you'll be like God, knowing good from evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was a wimp and with her and he ate it. Now this is a paramount passage as we get started. Adam and Eve are in paradise. They're in the ultimate scenario and the deceiver comes to them and into the scene it's like, Wow, like all these, these great trees, all this great fruit. And then he engages this strategy from day one that he has never diverged from. He takes God's truth and he adds just a little twist. Such great fruit, like it's a bummer. It's a bummer God says you can't eat any, so I guess you'll just have to go hungry. He says, no, 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 that's, that's not the situation. Like, we've been eating the fruit. God said eat the fruit. It's good stuff. It's, it's just that, that one tree, yeah, there in, in, in the middle. Yeah, we can't eat from that one. Actually, we can't even touch it because we'll die. And again, God never said that. But the deceiver's like, is that what he said? Like, are you sure? Because maybe you just misunderstood. No, see, because you're, you're, you're not going to die. Listen, you think you got paradise here Here's what God knows, because he's, he's holding out on you. Because if you eat that fruit, you're, you're going to be just like him. And then in that moment, the deceiver introduces even Adam to an element of distrust that was not there before. Can God be trusted? And after some thought, Eve decides not to trust God. And so does Adam. And then the eyes of both of them were open, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. See, God had made them totally naked and unashamed at the start. No need for clothes, no need for anything. Men, your wife was never going to drag you to the mall or the strip mall to go clothes shopping. She was never going to ask you, does this fig leaf make me look fat? See, she did not need 50 pairs of shoes. Sorry, my friend. <laughs> it was paradise. But once they ate the fruit, instantly... Their eyes are open, and every bit of that element of purity and lack of shame that was there before evaporates. 
And I've long held the opinion shared by many theologians that there wasn't necessarily anything magical about the fruit itself, but rather the act of disobedience and rebellion in and of itself opened their eyes. I mean, haven't we all made a decision that in the moment, we just, we, you felt justified, you felt rationalized, you talked yourself into it, even though there was that little voice into it, I don't think this is a good idea, and you just pushed it down, and you did it anyways, and almost immediately, it's like your eyes were open. Suddenly, you saw the situation entirely different than maybe you did even just moments before. And almost immediately, it's just like these blinders are pulled away, and you see you had just made a bad decision. And in a moment, you feel regret. It's as if suddenly your eyes were open. This is where it all began. One small act opened their eyes. And as a result of this one small act of rebellion and disobedience, their relationship with God is devastated. It's destroyed. And you might think, you know, isn't that a bit of an overreaction? I mean, a little over the top. And that's because we forget. There wasn't there weren't 10 laws, there weren't 413 laws, there was just one rule, one command, one rule to keep or break. So obviously it was important. And the potential for keeping it, the good in keeping it, was incredible. But so was the potential for breaking it. And it's not like God tricked them. Or he hid any truth from them. He was completely upfront with them about what would happen. But they decided, just one rule, to violate God's trust. And as all of us know, the foundation for any relationship is trust. And most, if not all of us, know what it's like, what it feels like to have a trust violated by somebody that we trusted, that we should have been able to trust. And most of all of us understand the feelings of what it is to be disregarded or betrayed and the internal devastation it causes. And just like we cannot hurt ourselves without hurting other people, especially those we, that are closest to us, their future family and the future of humanity had been forever altered with one huge bad decision, just as we impact future generations with our decisions. For humanity from that point, Women began to have pain in childbirth. Men were working before, but now it's laborious and frustrating. Adam and Eve see their children murder one another. And they begin to see death and disease and sickness and hurt and pain and natural catastrophes and predator-prey relationship. And, and every single thing that makes our life miserable now began right here at this point. It's impossible to over-exaggerate how the very nature of humanity was changed from that point forward. Generations later, the Apostle Paul, writing to Christians in Rome, would write them this, Sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin. And in this way, death came to all people. All sin. See, we've all seen sin kill things kill a relationship, kill a marriage, kill a family, kill a person's sense of self-worth, literally cause someone to lose their life. And that simple nature that we all have inside of us, that tendency to rebel, to do and say what we want, when we want, is now born in every single one of us. You never have to teach a child 
how to be selfish or jealous or not share or to throw a tantrum and demand their own way. And the truth is, we never fully grow out of it. We just become a little more civilized with it. And imagine what that first day was like. That first day when they walked out of that garden and God said, you can never come back here again. The author tells us that an angel with a flaming sword was put at the entrance of the garden to make sure no one could go in. And I can't even imagine the level of regret. They hadn't just blown it for them. They had blown it for their children, their grandchildren, everyone in all of creation. And then to watch the world fall apart because of their one decision. And I wonder if it's like a person who's experienced war but doesn't want to talk about it because it was just so horrible. I wonder if their kids ever said, Mom, Dad, tell us, tell us what the garden was like. Like, was it wonderful? I hear it was awesome. They say, I, I, I just don't want to talk about it. It was just so good. And the sense of regret that had to fill their heart day in, day out, every time she had a baby, every time he went out to work. I think this is the part of the story that connects with us with the most because there's one thing that every single person in this room and listening to my voice have in common. Regret. Every one of us have had blown opportunities. We had the potential for good, to do good, to bless those around us, to bless those that we love, and we look back and we go, I blew it. Somewhere along the way, we had hopes and dreams. We imagined a future because we saw so much potential. But now, we stand on the other side with regret and blown opportunity. Maybe for some of you, it was in your marriage. I mean, you clearly remember the day when you walked down that aisle wearing the best clothes that you had ever worn in your life and you joined hands with the person that you loved more than any other person in the world and you exchanged vows and promises and commitments until death do us part. And and, and now on the other side of that potential, you're both still very much alive, but there's emotional damage. Maybe there's financial obligation and hurt and bitterness and anger And maybe it ripped the marriage apart. Maybe it ripped the family apart. For some of you, you remember those first days after you first left home. Maybe you had your went in the military, you had your went to college, you had your new books and your dorm, and you're ready to make new friends, and everything was ahead of you, and that yet one, three, five, ten years later, you look back and you feel like I feel like there may have been more loss than gain involved. Maybe the greatest element of purity you ever carried in your life you left behind in a dorm room or an apartment. Maybe you met a person and now you wish you could go back and unmeet them, like not call, not text, not have responded, not have gone to their apartment or their room. Maybe you ended up in a friendship or up in a friendship or a relationship that just led you in a direction you never thought you would go and you carry regret. Maybe it was or maybe it is with your finances. You made some decisions that made so much sense at the time, but now your eyes are open. And it wasn't a good decision. It was a bad decision. It was a series of bad decisions. And there's regret. Maybe for some, you had a precious child that would grab tight if a stranger ever got close and they just seemed to follow you everywhere and hang on your words, but now they're grown and you feel like you don't have much influence in their life anymore. Maybe it was too much do as I say, not as I do. Maybe it was, I don't have time for you now. i got a lot on my plate. I'm busy. I've got work. Maybe it was constantly trying to force them to be some, someone they weren't. Maybe it was a lack of guidance or direction or modeling. 
And now you'd love to go back and do things differently. And you say, I blew it. Or maybe for you it was a job. You remember you felt so much potential for your future because of this job. But over a period of time, for whatever reason, maybe laziness or greed or dishonesty or stubbornness, you're just not welcome there anymore. And it's a job you don't want to put on your resume. Whatever it was, personal, relational, financial, there was so much hope and potential and promise at the beginning, but now on this side, there's just regret and wishing we could take it back. So the question that comes when you're on this side is, okay, what do we do? Like, yes, I've, I've, I've done some stupid things, not as stupid as the person next to me, but I've done some, some dumb things. I've blown it. I have regret. And the amazing thing about the Bible is, is that we're given insight and direction. We look back at Adam in verse 7. They've eaten the fruit. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together, made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking through the garden in the cool of the day. And what did they do? They hid. They hid from the Lord their God among the trees. Now think about how incredibly absurd this is. Okay, they're hiding from the creator of the universe. I can see Adam, like a few fig leaves around, like, Eve, Eve, come over here. Maybe he won't see us. And if he does, maybe he won't notice. We're naked. It's like incredibly absurd, but it's just so common. It's like the little kid throwing a ball in the house and a vase or a lamp gets knocked over and broken. And he says, I know what I'll do. I'll put it all back together and glue it and I'll put it behind this picture and then mom and dad won't find it or ever notice it. I'll hide it. Uh, I remember as as a kid, not long after we moved to Wichita, that I remember my dad coming in to me one day and saying, Chad, did you carve Chad P into the sill of your window? No. Not me. Are you sure it says Chad P? Nope. Must have been my sister. It's just, but I mean, how many of us, like, we've experienced this growing up, and it never works. And God knew full well that Adam had eaten the fruit, that he was naked, that he was ashamed, and hiding behind that tree right there with fig leaves. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? Now let me ask, was God confused? Like, were they that good at camouflage? Like, God's like, I, just, I was going to come hang out. I can't find them. I, I'd suggest two reasons as to why God calls out, where are you? The first is, he knew where Adam was. But God wanted Adam to know where Adam was. And when it comes to you and me, when it comes to our finances, our bodies, our singleness, our marriage, our career, raising our kids, He is gracious, gracious enough to call out and say to us, Chad, where are you? Like, I know where you are, but I don't want you to be deceived about where you are. The other is that God wanted Adam to know He's looking for him. See, in Genesis 2, God tells them clearly and directly, hey, don't eat the fruit of that tree because if, if you do, you're going to die. So don't do that. So God was fully in his rights. He would have been just and fair if he just simply said, well, time to start over, delete, refresh, whatever. You, they failed. They disobeyed. But God wants us to know that he is not only fair and righteous and just and good. He wants us to know he is also merciful 
and caring and gracious. So he hollers out, Adam, Chad, where are you? I know what you've done. I know you've blown it. But I want us to connect again. And if you don't hear anything else today, I want you to hear this. God is always pursuing you. God is always looking. The question is, are we willing to be found? See, Adam wasn't. He finally steps out, but he continues to try and hide from God. Adam answered, I heard you in the garden, but I was afraid. I was naked, so I hid. And God said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, I am so glad you asked. See, I was here naming the animals. I was ruling. I was subduing. Everything going fine. And the woman, like, I don't even think I asked for her, okay? You remember you put her down here. She was your idea. Well, she was over by that tree, the one, you know, you told us not to eat from. Well, she was by that one. I saw her eat some of the fruit. Yeah, exactly what you told her not to do, okay? Then the woman you put here with me, she gave me some of the fruit of the tree, and I ate it. You did what? Yeah, I, I think she ate like a whole piece. I just had like one little bite. So if you were, really want to know who to blame for this mess, like she, she should be the one you need to talk to because she ate the fruit. I was right there. And uh, so if you need somebody to vouch for it, I'm your man. Now, isn't it true? Every one of us, we've got family. We've got family members or friends and We've got people we work with. Like if you were to ask them about the tension in their family, they begin to explain all the reasons why they can't get along with their parents or with their siblings. And it's always someone else's fault. They start to explain why they can't get along with their spouse or their kids. And it's always someone else's fault. Or if you ask your friend about the divorce and he says, you know, my wife was just impossible. Like, I, I mean, she would just this, that, and the other, and we'd still be together, we'd be fine. Or my husband, he was just so insensitive and clueless, I just couldn't take it anymore. We lived in Missouri. When we lived in Missouri, I had a guy that I knew in our church, and his wife caught him cheating. And his defense, no joke, was that if his wife hadn't been spying on him, she never would have caught him cheating, they'd be fine. <laughs> yeah. This is dumb some of the excuses I've made in my life. In high school or college, you, like, you look back and you say, you know, it was my friends. I made these friends or those fraternity brothers or sorority sisters, and they steered me. They steered me down the wrong path. It's because of them. Or my boss, who's just so impossible. I'd still, do, I'd still be there if it weren't for my boss. Or my kids. My kids just don't, won't do what they're told. It's just, that's kids for you. Or if it weren't for my mom, if it weren't for my dad, I mean, this is how they were towards me growing up. So they're the reason I'm so screwed up, and that's why I'm this way. But this is so important. All God is asking Adam and for Eve and for you and for me is will you stop hiding and stop blaming? Because if you do, that's when God can engage you and your circumstances. In the verses prior, God explains all the curses and consequences that have come with their decision. And then the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife. And he clothed them. Many theologians believe that these garments, these skins, represent the animals that had to die in Adam and Eve's place so that they could be covered. 
That, in other words, this was a foreshadowing that death was required to atone for, to cover sin, that immediate death consequences that were supposed to go to Adam and Eve instead went to these animals. And this was God's choice. God knew that Adam was naked and Eve were naked. They were ashamed and he didn't want them to try and tackle this new world in fig leaves. He was gracious, gracious enough to go, hear my son, hear my daughter. I known you've blown it. Just put this on. I love you. This is your provision. This is my grace. I care for you. And we all know people. We all know people who are hiding and blaming. And we want to say so bad, you know, as long as you just keep it up and stay on this track, you're never going to be able to move forward until you stop blaming and stop hiding. That person may be in the mirror. And we all have friends and family that are hiding and blaming when it comes to God. And again, it may be the person in the mirror, but the good news is that this gathering of documents is filled with people with so much potential who blew it, have regret, and then allowed God to give them skins, His grace, His provision, the ability to move forward. There's a principle that I believe, that I believe to be true because I've seen it in my own life, and it's this. That the only thing that keeps me from God's grace is my hiding and my blaming. And as I look back on my own life, my own relationships, my own career, my finances, my relationship with God, when I look back and I see those times where I felt trapped or lost or disconnected, like God, you know, He may love me, but He doesn't like me. I felt all that primarily during times when I was hiding and when I was blaming. I want to invite the band on up. As we start this series, it starts with the God who created paradise. And then the situation was filled with so much potential for Adam, for Eve, so much hope for the future, just like we start out with in life. But they blew it. We've blown it. We've created maybe in some situations an absolute mess. Their response was to hide and blame. But nothing can change or get better until we stop, until we get to where we can say, you know what, the relationship struggles, the marriage struggles, the financial failure. It was at least partly, if not largely, my fault. I know he did some things, she said some things, but I have a part of it. It was my fault. I'm not so good job in raising kids, the job, again, the finances, the porn, the addiction, I made choices. I have to own it. It's my fault. And to step out from hiding and blaming is a terrifying thing to do. We're so afraid that God's going to backhand us or something. You deserve this. And the fact is, there are. There are consequences to all of our choices, all of our decisions. But the great news is, when it comes to our relationship with God, God has already made the sacrifice. He's not going to come and jerk you out from behind the tree and rip off the fig leaves and try to shame you and all that. He just wants us to come walking out on our own volition, even though we're afraid. So I just want to end the day with this. Where, where are you hiding and where are you blaming? When it comes to ideal and what's real in your life, in your relationship with someone else, or with your work life, or your personal life? Is there 
something you're trying to keep a secret, something that you're hiding. Where are you hiding? Where are you trying to hide from God or hide from others? And where are you blaming when it comes to your blown potential in your life or in some area of your life or a relationship in your life? When it comes to your happiness or your ability to have a healthy, thriving relationship or success in your finances or career? Because sometimes we blame a who, sometimes we blame circumstances when the truth is we are partly or even largely to blame. Are you hiding and are you blaming in some area? Because as long as you do that, I speak from experience, the worse it's going to be and eventually it's going to blow up. And the hiding and the blaming is the only thing that will keep you from experiencing God's grace in that situation for yourself and for those that are closest to you. The only way forward is to take a step out from behind the tree as vulnerable as it makes you feel and to own it and to give God the chance to provide what you need to move forward. I've asked the band just to close us again with that, that song, Faithful Now, because the theme of the song is, God, you were faithful then. You'll be faithful now. You are the one I can trust. This wasn't what I had planned to share, but I don't know how many of you know, but this, in the early 90s, was a church building that's owned by the university. And in the early 90s, they were only around a, a couple years. So the main auditorium seats 1,750 people. So, again, think of the potential. And the short story is, the reason the church just evaporated is because the senior pastor and one of the elders had struck a deal with a Mexican drug cartel leader in San Antonio to launder $10 million to the church as long as the church got 10%. <laughs> because the money's out there, let's put it to use for God's kingdom. And well, it turns out it was not a drug cartel leader, it was an ATF agent. <laughs> so those guys went arrest, arrest, were arrested and went to prison, and the church just evaporated. And I talked to some of the university employees that were here when they bought this building after it sat empty for like two, three years. And they said it was eerie. Like, see, I'm old enough to know like the Left Behind series. It was like that. Like, it's just because you had instruments and music equipment and kids' equipment and cribs just collecting dust all those years because nobody knew what to do. It just evaporated. Just imagine all the potential that was lost. And, and do you think like it came to that decision overnight? Like it was a series of little incremental decisions to hide and blame. And so I mean it when I say, and even again for my personal life, sometimes as painful as it can be to step into the light on some of the things where we're hiding and blaming, and the sooner we do it, the better, because the potential for good is so great, but the potential for making it more worse, worse or more complicated, that's incredible too. But again, I understand it's easier said than done. Let me pray for us. Father, I, I pray for all of this because, as I just said, this is easier said than done. Because once we've made certain decisions or made certain choices or there's things about ourselves that we know, but we're embarrassed about them, God, we're just afraid. We're afraid to be more embarrassed or more shamed or afraid how the truth coming out might hurt certain people in our lives. When the truth is, odds are they probably suspect there's a problem anyways. They just don't know what it is. And for some of us, Father, we're just stuck because we're still holding on to somebody that we're blaming for certain circumstances or behaviors in our life when the truth is it's, it's time. 
for us to let that go. But God, that's hard because then we have to own it. So I pray for everyone listening to my voice, and I pray for me. God, I know there's things that I say or do that if it were broadcast on this screen or on social media, I would be embarrassed. And so, Father, I just pray for all of us that you would give us the courage to be authentic with you and with one another. That, God, we would own those things that we wouldn't want other people to know about. And that you'll give us the courage to attack it while it's small and bring it into the light before you. That you might fulfill your promise to never leave us and never forsake us and give us a hope in a future. I pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.